0: You know, we talk about deconstruction a lot from a theological perspective, for some of us from a political perspective, but not very often do we talk about it from an emotional well-being perspective, how it impacts us in our mental health and uh, our work on our humanness as a human being. That's why I really appreciate the conversation we're going to have today with a man who is not only a pastor... But a therapist, Dr. Mark Harris, is our guest today, and he's going to talk about the emotional impact of deconstruction and dealing with that. And before we get to that conversation, let me remind you that podcasts like this that I'm able to do for free to offer to everybody are funded by the subscriptions that you do on my website at pastor-paul.com. Would you go to pastor-paul.com? and consider being part of helping us continue to do this work, to grow this work, and to offer the hours and hours of free content we do every month. Pastor-Paul.com is the website, and any help you can give, as little as $5.99 a month, up to $100 a month, or even a one-time gift will be a huge, huge, huge help. We're not tax-deductible organization. We pay taxes. It's for-profit, so you won't get a tax deduction. But the reward of generosity, I believe, comes back to us. So if you appreciate my message, you want others to hear it, go to my website and consider being a part of the Pastor Paul community and getting all the cool stuff we have over there when you subscribe. Pastor-Paul.com is the website. Now to my discussion with Dr. Mark Harris on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. Let me introduce Mark Harris and bring him in to join us. Dr. Mark Karras is a licensed therapist in San Diego, California. He's an ordained pastor, author of several books, including the one I just mentioned, Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Health. Mark, good talking to you. San Diego, good place to
1: suffer for the Lord, huh? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm from New York originally in yeah, there's no going back after being here for sure.
0: <laughs> it is a it is a beautiful place. I've never understood why they have weathermen on the TV stations in San Diego. It's gotta be the easiest job in the world. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, appreciate you you joining us. And sure, your book sure. is religious refugees. And so just tell me about that concept of religious refugees. Where did you come up with that name, and and what does that mean to you?
1: Yeah. Well, as I was thinking about uh, many people, this is a uh, few years now, but thinking about the people that I was working with in therapy, uh, working through their own crisis of faith, faith shift, deconstruction or reconstruction journey, um, or what I these days call uh, spiritual metamorphosis. They, um, yeah, it was such a, u- seem like a unique group of people that I myself found myself to be sort of this religious refugee. And I think of it sort of as a person who has chosen to flee their homeland of institutional religion to find a space where they feel safe and, and congruent. And that was my experience. I worked through my own spiritual metamorphosis journey for quite some time. Very disorienting. A lot of religious trauma. Um, There's Then it gets into adverse religious experiences and uh, religious disorientation. I differentiate the three, and and that could be helpful for a little bit down the road. But, yeah, just a passion to want to help people and uh, just to see a particular area of suffering and, you know, Lord send me kind of thing. And uh, it's been a beautiful journey ever since. So it's
0: it it sounds sort of like the Abraham journey of the Bible of like, leave the land of your father and go someplace where you don't know where you're going. Is that sort of the concept?
1: Yes. Although it's so disorienting because people, they don't know whether, where God is in the midst of it. They, all they know is they can't stay uh, where they are. And they find this sort of cognitive dissonance just, they can't push the, the thoughts down anymore. That this policy doesn't seem right. This proposition, really, God, sort of hell for eternity, like eternity, like 100,000 million trillion, you know, gazillion, like wow, that's a long time. Uh, Divine violence. I'm not sure really is that that was really God in the Bible and and that was Jesus because you say Jesus is fully God. And so that must have been Jesus to kill the Egyptian babies and flood the planets. And because I'm so angry and I have this wrath. And so a lot of, you know, people and, and, you know, the politics are a part of it, too, for for some people. I see these politicians and my family is very Christian and my church is Christian, but I'm like, I don't see how they're in line with the values of of who I see uh, from Jesus. So a lot of disorientation, I can't push it down anymore. At that point, it's not even a choice. It's I, I, my soul is getting sick uh, and and the choice to leave or stay then becomes a choice, but it's a seed that just, uh, you know, is there and it blossoms no matter what we do or say. Um. So it sounds like, I mean,
0: are those kind of the common threads of a uh, vengeful, angry, mean God sort of becomes discomforting for us? Or uh, in this day and age, and certainly it was a final straw for my household, the, the politics of mm-hmm. sort of that right-wing Republican slant, are, are those kind of the common threads you see, not only as a pastor, but as a therapist mm-hmm. looking at this?
1: Yeah, I think um, this was sort of coming from the research part of me. What does the research say? And so there's a lot of uh, qualitative research. I know uh, Josh Packard, um, uh, Dave Kinneman uh, and and various others doing research on, hey, why are these people leaving? Like, what's going on? And so I in, in the book I do sort of flush out some. Kind of uh, putting the qualitative research together and coming up with some themes and poli- politics and bureaucracy was definitely part of it and that gets very complex you know people uh, whether they were divorced or gay or too young or too old and not attractive enough not articulate enough not white enough you know somehow they're the in even within the church there's the in group and there's the out group i don't particularly fit that category for many reasons And so that could be some of the nature of the politics. For some, it was sort of the, uh, what I call clone war syndrome. And that was, um, yeah, some of the churches, this was my church, uh, the Pentecostal church. Like they were in perpetual war with the culture and not just the culture, but the church down the street. And there was this, uh, you know, sort of business of creating clones and where there was no messy dialogue and discussion and, and different encounters with people at different theologies and ways of seeing God. And it was just, we're the in group you're the out group we're going to literally like we're going to heaven. Well, I think we are. Yes, we are. I, it was very confusing <laughs> in the Pentecost. I was trying to get saved every week at the altar. Yes. Um, but yeah, everyone else is going to hell, particularly in my tradition, if you weren't baptized in Jesus name only. And, um, and you, if you believe in the Trinity, you would be going to hell as well. It
0: <laughs> is right? funny. I, I grew up in the Assemblies of God. Uh, my yeah. wife, my wife grew up Baptist. We both grew up thinking the other, with beliefs almost exactly the same. Almost exactly uh, the same, but always believing the others were probably going to hell. We didn't like overtly say they were going to hell, but mm-hmm. you know that once saved, always saved thing kind of puts you iffy as whether god was going
1: to bring you in or not yeah it sounds like the fruit of healthy spirituality to be uh, exclusion fear-based who's in who's out yeah worrying about your salvation their salvation yeah it's uh there's a sadness to that
0: and you mentioned religious trauma and and again i point out to people you are you're a therapist i mean is that is that really a thing? I, I I think it's something I experienced growing up, but I I wasn't ever sure if it was truly a thing or just something we we sort of point to. How do you define yeah. religious
1: trauma, and is it really a thing? Right, um, it, it's def, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a thing. Um, you know, there's sort of in, in, there's in uh, psychological terms are sort of in vogue, so everybody trauma, this, and you're a narcissist and, oh, you're a codependent. And, um you know, you're abusive, you're gaslighting me. So a lot of people throwing terms out, sometimes they can lose its sting. Well, it does sting, but it loses its value in some sense. Right. But yeah, there's definitely religious trauma. And there are several organizations that are trying to work together to come up with standard definitions, trying to advocate that it becomes included in psychological texts like the DSM, but taking it very seriously uh, because of the impact that we're seeing on people. And so we're we're dealing with trauma, invariably we're dealing with, well, there should be some um, people exhibiting PTSD type of symptoms. And so religious trauma, there's PTSD and complex PTSD. And so within complex PTSD, which is sort of many events over a period of time, yes, we're seeing the symptoms in the in our offices as uh, therapists working with this particular niche. So people who have trouble sleeping, uh, people who have anxiety, uh, who uh, a lot of hypervigilance, um, like take one example of, Belief in hell. I know it may be hard for some people to wrap their heads around it, but some people have such a fear of going to hell that it becomes su- such a part of like a low level hum within their emotional, mental, spiritual experience that if they do something wrong or they drop the ball here or they're, you know, any area of sin or it becomes, you know, is God mad at me? Is God going to punish me? And that is a form of religious trauma um, because when you go to that church and you have people in authority who are threatening you with hell because of you not measuring up to a certain standard. And yet sort of this is where gaslighting comes into play. God loves you, yet you're as worthless as a rag ragdoll. Yeah. You have no intrinsic value in and of yourself that God would rather throw you in the fires of a pit of hell for eternity. Uh, so he loves you, and you're worthless. And the only value you have is if God, you know, in his wrath and anger can, if he looks at you through the prism of Christ, uh, well, and then if he has the blood of Christ, he becomes sort of vampire God who gets satiated with pure blood, who then is no longer angry and wrathful towards human beings. It's just confusing. And, yeah. and for some people of a sensitive temperament, you know, you can have two people in the same church. One's like, yes, absolutely. You, yeah, they're going to go to hell. I love you, Jesus, your, your holiness. And your, and they may not experience any kind of emotional, mental symptoms, but then you have the sensitive temperament kind of people, the cognitive, cognitive dissonance is too great to ignore and it can create a lot of internal suffering. Yeah. What does that, I mean, what does that do to us
0: as human beings? And, and particularly where I grew up, with the left behind, you know, the rapture, the the, you know, any second Jesus could come, and if you were, in a theater, uh, you would be left behind, and and now you're going to have to get six 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 on your forehead and get beheaded, and we, you know, we were taught yeah. this at, at very young ages, and you're going to have to not deny Christ and be willing to be shot. I, I mean, that has to have an impact on a young brain.
1: Yes. From your loving fear, father, your fear, loving God in heaven. I know the, the, it's it's hard to not f- think that this is crazy making. Now, I no, I believed it. Uh, it's just I'm in a different space right now. and no. It is not to say that the people who still hold to these beliefs are, are bad people. Uh, all I could say is that for, for me, it's just not palatable for my soul. But yeah, I mean, it's fear for breakfast, fear for lunch, fear for dinner. That's uh, that's the menu. And it, it increases, uh, infuses us with shame, fear, uh, extra glucocorticoids, uh, stress hormones, especially when you think of a young brain, it creates these indelible traumatic marks on, on Young people's nervous systems. That, oh my God, there's a there's an angry, wrathful God who, if you don't do the right thing, will punish you in this world, and as we read in the biblical text, many times violently so, uh, or in the next. And that, like I said, I, some people can can digest that. Uh, other people, it creates such a it creates such a traumatic mark in the nervous system that even people who have said. Oh, yeah, I don't believe that anymore. They have what what I call um, it's sort of a theological phantom limbs. You know, when someone loses a limb, they can sometimes have these sensations that are still there. And some people who don't believe in hell anymore can still have nightmares about it. Right. Um, still, they, they can hear something on the radio and some preachers talking about uh, hell and, you know, hellfire. Oh, what's I don't believe that. Why why am I having a reaction in my nervous system and getting triggered in this moment? It's very interesting. Uh,
0: I deal with it. I'm laughing, and and that's such a good way. The phantom limb idea is such a good way to describe it. People I work with in, in my Deconstruction U classes and things all the time are saying, I don't believe the way I used to believe. I'm not even sure if I believe there's a God anymore, but there's still something deep inside that says, am i putting myself in hell and and even more so am i taking my kids to hell it is a it is a a thing that's always sort of laying like a a low-grade infection down there it seems like
1: yes indeed it's um you know theology matters beliefs matter and many people who love god and love jesus you know, just find it uh, intolerable. Um, You know, I have a lot I always try to look through a lens of compassion. I mean, most of the people, um, they're just believing what was taught to them. Mm -hmm. And some like the real there's there are full blown narcissists. uh, But there are just genuine people who love God and love the biblical text and see that as God's word and are just preaching what they've been taught and was preached to them and trying to pass it down and and be faithful to who they, who they perceive God to be. So I have a lot of compassion for, for people in in that place. It's, uh, great people, good people.
0: Well, and, and here's my thing for those people. And you can tell me what you think of that. You know, if, if, we are creating trauma in people, to use to use that highly used word, as you mentioned. Yeah. We ought to make darn sure we're right, shouldn't we? I, should Because I, I, I feel like most of the time I deal with this with sort of Christian people who are still in that space, not, not deconstructing, like they can't even hear another viewpoint. It, it has to be true. Mm-hmm. And to me, just there ought to be a basic, we need to look at this every once in a while and say, "Hey, we're really hurting people. We better make sure this is true." And I don't—I don't feel like we ever. I know I didn't when I was in the middle of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Stop and ask myself enough: Is this really true? Because I—I I guess I was always sort of aware there was a dissonance in our belief, but I was kind of like, yeah, but we're so good. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. From your therapy perspective, shouldn't we like be questioning ourselves on an
1: ongoing basis? Well, why would we do the very thing that Satan did, you know, <laughs> right? Uh, h- hath God really said um, so Yeah, it does create a little anxiety and trepidation to question the religious status quo. Because once again, we're told if we do, we're in cahoots with Satan and some, you know, debauchery and, you know, interesting soiree uh, with him. But yeah, it's and then you have the real from a nervous system perspective. This gets into evolutionary psychology, where, you know, in in the olden days with tribes, there was a reason why you had to maintain homogenous beliefs that united the tribes. Right. It was really important to have a sort of a cohesiveness with the narratives. You couldn't go wandering. If you wandered off, you'd be dead. So a very tight knit. This is the rules of the game. This is our beliefs. This is the myths and metaphors and and religious practices and propositions, so that all became important. So if people did stray, they could either be killed or the tribe would kill them. So we learn from an evolutionary perspective to not stray from the tribe. And even if you got kicked out, I mean, it's, you know, it's what uh, Jacques uh, Pengstap calls sort of primal panic. We the re- social rejection is in the same region of the brain as physical pain. So mm. it's very real. It's very real. And the, the notion that we can get rejected by our tribe leaves us in sort of a, in a nervous system level, I could die. Um, it, it's sort of this, maybe not logically if you ask them like, Oh, they're just going to die tomorrow, but emotionally it feels like they can get in, in serious Uh, trouble and experiences of rejection with eternal rejection being one of the most serious.
0: Wow. I love this conversation with Dr. Harris. Stick with us. Let me interrupt for just a moment to tell you about something we have coming up on a regular basis. For those of you who are rethinking your faith and maybe you've left your church behind But you haven't left spirituality and a connection to heaven behind, let me encourage you to jump into a mentorship project I have going on. It's called Deconstruction You. You may know that there's something wrong in your philosophy, ideology, or theology, but you're like, I don't have language to put on it, and I'm a little bit scared that maybe I'm going to hell or sending my kids to hell. Let me put your heart at rest through my mentorship of deconstruction. We look at the nine major questions of deconstructing. Who is God? Who are they and who am I in my identity with them? How do I look at the Bible in a post-evangelical context? And what is sin and what is hell? And how do I determine where my beliefs are? I won't tell you what to believe, but I'll tell you how to walk through a journey to get to your beliefs and to get to truth. And I'll walk that journey with you. One on one's with me online uh, study guides and cohort meetings with others walking through a journey just like you in community. It is amazing, it's cost-effective, and it's how I afford to continue to do my work in this ministry. So if you love my message and want people to enjoy it as well, this is how you do it by jumping in on my mentorships and subscriptions. So go to my website, pastor-paul.com and click on the Deconstruction, Reconstruction U tab and see what i have to offer in walking alongside as a paraclete the other name for a holy spirit we can be paracletes walking alongside each other through my mentorship in deconstruction you would you consider it pastor com is the website check it out today now back to this amazing discussion with dr mark harris about the emotional well-being of deconstruction yeah so that's a that's a scary thing our guest by the way is dr mark harris uh, he's a licensed therapist in San Diego, ordained pastor, and has a book out called "Religious Refugees: Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing." So I hear that part of emotional healing in there, and in in this discussion of deconstruction, I know people who are very angry, feel like they were lied to by their church. I hear your compassion, but is is there sort of a process of are you allowed to have anger at your old church and your old religion as part of an emotional healing process as you're rethinking this?
1: Paul, you damn straight. Shoot, I'm <laughs> from New York. You better get in touch with that anger. Um, yeah, I in the book, I talk about one station. As far as stages, I use the word stations that people can travel to on the journey. But yeah, Angstville is one of those stations. You know, there, there's actually a, a research study on heartbreak and breaking up um, after, you know, a, in, a, in a romantic relationship. And it's it shown that people who feel angry towards the other person and split them all bad actually helps their healing process and helps them heal uh, quicker. So I thought that was interesting. But in this context, um, anger is really important. Uh, We want to normalize it. We want to validate it. It, It's an important part of the process. Uh, Where people can get stuck is forcing their own timelines on people uh, Mm -hmm. because some people can stay there a little longer than we might prefer. Uh, At the end of the day, remaining there for too long probably is not healthy. Uh, They've done some research on, you know, let's say cynicism. Uh, and, and anger, of course, and, and it's just it does become toxic. Uh, root to your of bitterness
0: body. we yeah. always hear about. It. It's going to be a bitter root.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I could say that spiritual writer may tap into something very important and that if we leave this stuff in our, in our psyches too long, the negative energy that is in there and the energy it takes for it to just stay there as opposed to really choosing to deal and then feel and then reveal to another so you can heal. It's very costly. So to go back to anger, very important. Um, Want to normalize it. Why wouldn't we be angry? Uh, look, look at the things we were taught. Um, like I said, I, I think down the road, it's helpful to have uh, a wider view and maybe a more compassionate view. I know that's sort of Zenish. Uh, Maybe Jesus-y to some degree, but it does more good for you. And it's probably more truthful. Because if we we think about the churches that were feeding us this stuff, I really believe that some of them are narcissists in leadership, but some of them were well-meaning people just trying to be true to how they perceive to be the Word of God. And plus, how can I cast such judgment on them if I was there? And how can I cast such judgment on them when in 50 years or 25 years, generations ahead of me will look back at my life and the things that I believe and the practices that I did, whether whether environmental or, uh, you know, religion, spirit, who knows? I'm sure that there's plenty of judgment that could be done to me. So I I try to withhold harsh judgment. Especially towards people, behaviors, ideologies, propositions. Oh, hell yeah! That's just that's just toxic. Some of them are just. But people, yeah, some some of them like me were just trying to do the best we can in this chaosmos.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think people will look back and say we're wrong today because. I think God is progressive there. Things are, you know, Jesus said, don't try to put new wine into old wineskins and all of those things. But I, but I would hope, I would hope that the church at some point would say, Hey, we do have to look, uh, we do have to look at this idea of forget the former things, new things are happening. We're supposed to be changing and moving. And, and, um, in your book, you talked a little bit about this as, as sort of, uh, a 500-year process, that there are revivals. Uh, you know, there's a, there's theories out there that this is sort of a regular thing that happens in the church, that it has to have some upheaval every once in a while if we're kind of not willing to look at it ourselves.
1: Right, right. I think uh, Brian McLaren talks about the great migration and um, yeah, this, the uh, spiritual rummage sale that needs to take place every so often. You know, I think the church is, oh, I think it's, yeah, it's always morphing, changing, evolving. But then you get these big shifts yeah. that occur. Um, you know, Martin Luther uh, was a, a part of that, I'm sure. Uh, you know, it's it's just inevitable. And some people are the revolutionaries. Some people get burned at the stake. Uh, now, probably not burning at a literal stake, but the, you know, sort of social media stake you just uh, heretics and, you know, burn their books and but it's inevitable. It it happens. And I think to your point, uh, the church, I always have caution when I say the church, because there's no such thing as the church. But right. there's so many different churches and many people are many churches are doing the very thing you're talking about. Um, you know, they're looking and reflecting and repenting and. They're teaching things in a different way, not in a hierarchical top-down, but more of a collaborative dance between leadership and the congregation. And so, yeah, the heresy of clerisy, as Leonard Sweet uh, likes to talk about, people are seeing that and changes are happening in this very moment with some churches. But then, uh, yeah, there's some churches who are will be the dinosaurs. Uh, we'll see. I'll look in the museum, Mom. Yeah, look at that! Oh, still, still thinking that, huh? Wow.
0: <laughs> and then there are some going the other direction. It seems like uh, as, as well. I, you know, I was going to say on this idea of anger, and I, I've had enough of my own therapy uh, over the last five years or so that I think I, I, I may not be a therapist, but I play one on social media sometimes. Um, but that that idea of anger, uh, I have learned is um, coming to a place of saying, "Wow, this." this happened to me and, mm-hmm. and it was wrong and, and it wasn't my fault. And, and so I, right. I think there is some of that in our deconstruction. That's important, uh, that, that then gives you permission to start to rethink what
1: this looks like on the other side. Oh yes. Each emotion communicates two main things. One, they communicate information and two, they want to move us in a particular direction. So sadness communicates as a loss. Many times it could move us to want to connect with someone else for care and comfort. Joy communicates, you know, uh, something, a goal has been achieved, uh, and we want to share that with the community. Anger communicates there's a sense of injustice and unfairness. Uh, Anger is good. Anger is healthy. We need to befriend our anger. We need to listen to our anger because that is going to point us into, into a direction that's congruent with our soul. And so we should feel anger at the injustice that we see uh, within and without, for sure. And Jesus seemed to get
0: ticked off every once in a while at, uh, at some religious guys. <laughs> so, so it, it must yeah. be okay. Now, now, I'm sorry, I haven't been able to finish your whole book yet, but I heard you talk oh. about um, sort of three different ideas uh, of, of ways that people are approaching this. I think one, I can't even read my own writing here now. Um, yeah, I can't read my writing on that. But you're kind of talking about three different processes here. What what is that?
1: Um, I think it's in the beginning. I was talking about sometimes it's helpful to delineate between the different kinds of religious religious hurts that we have okay. because just because we have a religion. Well, so let's put it on the table. How should I? There's adverse religious experiences, and there's. Uh, what I would call in, in the book, I call disorientation, religious disorientation. And then there's religious trauma. I'm still working this out myself, but I think adverse religious experiences would just point to the fact that there are some people can experience, uh, you know, hurtful events in church, uh, you know, form of social rejection uh, proposition that was just not palatable, that they kind of uh, got angry at. They realized they believed in and moved in a different direction, but they, wouldn't necessarily um, be traumatized by it. There's no lasting uh, emotional, mental, uh, somatic effects of that experience. It's just an adverse religious experience. Hmm. So not everyone who's experienced, uh, you know, adverse religious experiences experiences religious trauma. That's the point there. I just think it's helpful. And then I think there's what I like to call religious disorientation growth syndrome, there's some pushback in the academic communities about the word syndrome but the point i was just making is that there's some symptoms that i see and we're seeing in the office that i just wanted to package together and say like this is real like i'm starting to see this cluster of symptoms and whether it was one doubting or denying one's religious beliefs that were once held as true or Two, subtle or intense anxiety about a person's relationship with God. Uh, Three, increase of painful emotions, such as anger, loneliness, shame, guilt, uh, sadness, despair. Four, isolation and criticism, whether feared or realized. In other words, whether they really experienced that or they feared that from uh, members in their own family or religious community. And sort of this existential uh, angst concerning a person's future, like, who am I now? What do I believe? Mm. Uh, what do I want? What makes me happy? I was, you know, I got, had the baby bottle of the church just giving me the, the milk and the nutrients. They were telling me who I was and what I could do or what I should do or what I shouldn't do. And now I'm sort of disentangled from that. And that's sort of this existential crisis that can happen. I differentiate that between between that and religious trauma because it's almost... It's sort of this season that people can find themselves in and sometimes it's short lived, maybe three months, maybe six months where it feels really intense, but then they work through it to paradoxically find a lot of growth and spiritual metamorphosis on the other end. I just like to differentiate that from religious trauma because religious trauma, I think it has more indelible marks on the nervous system where people struggle sleeping and they have panic attacks. And they, you know, they have uh, this hypervigilance, you know, danger uh, triggered, uh, you know, every more days than not. It's a very intense uh, process, this complex uh, PTSD. And plus, shame and self-criticism are so intrinsic to that, that it becomes so uh, just it's it's so much a part of their, their internal world. And then you might even differentiate another one I'm thinking from um, – the dark night of the soul. So maybe that would even be a fourth one. Yeah. Because that could, the thing with religious disorientation is you may not become a Christian at the other end. <clears throat> Many aren't. they are ex-evangelicals, ex-evangel- <clears throat> the dechurched. churched um, So I, I like to think that the dark night of the soul is a very spiritual experience. And it's very much centered around the relationship with God and at the end, um, typically they they want to find God in a in a new way, and so it's a very I think a unique experience in the religious disorientation uh, growth syndrome that I see. So just I'm trying to flush that stuff out. I, I love it.
0: I I think I think that's there's a really important concepts to think through because yeah some people may just there's going to be a moment we see it in the Psalms where you're like God where the hell are you you know what what, what happened here why why are you not here and that's really interesting. And, and, and one of the things I loved what you say, because I, I, do, I do coaching with people in, in something mm. I call deconstruction you, which is really, hey, let's dig through the theology, uh, uh, you know, mm. the things you're starting to doubt. Let's really dig into those. And then I have reconstruction you, which is so much of our identity is tied into our religious belief, our religious community. And when that's lost, um, who are nice. we now? Um, uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Identity is a big part of this, isn't it?
1: Oh, yes. It's um, it. There's there's a sick dynamic that I see with it's sort of there's an abuse element to the way church can foster spiritual and mental relational growth because they don't encourage the uniqueness of individuals and encourage openness and expansiveness. And they, they have the answers, right? So they become all you need. They become, well, who am I? Well, I'll tell you. What do I need? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, what's good? Well, I'll tell you. I will tell you. I will tell you. I will tell you. And so when they cut those, those, I think of the matrix and they cut those tubes off and they're no longer uh, connected to the religious matrix, it's so disorienting. And really that becomes the journey to find out who they are and what they like and don't like. And the last chapter in religious refugees is dedicated to that particular topic. And so part of my task, even as a therapist, is to help people explore their own values, what? Who do they want to be? Can you name your top five values? Mm-hmm. Let's explore together because some people like I have no idea. Well, let's explore. Let's think about it. Uh, goals are something you can achieve. Values become the compass that points you in the right direction. And engaging in value living, regardless of we've deconstructed well, or have all the answers. What does it mean to live life today? And so when people get in touch with their value of fitness or value of uh, taking care of the environment or value of relationships and finding different communities to be a part of it, values of adventure, uh, values of creativity, really owning their values, not letting someone else tell them who they are, it's it's liberating. It's Mm -hmm. like walking on a waterbed first, but then it's liberating for sure. (laughs)
0: And it gives you a value outside of just, my only value is that Jesus is keeping God from frying me in the fryer. It just seems like a healthier way to live.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, it's a beautiful way to be. I'm reminded of um, uh, the palliative nurse, Bronnie Ware wrote the top five regrets of the dying and one of the top five regrets being with people at the end of their days was I wish I lived a life that was true to myself and not a life that was expected of me. Powerful. Like, I'm not going out that way. Um, and I've lost friends. I've lost speaking engagements and, you know, no longer able to preach in, in certain churches. And, uh, yeah, family members, you know, it's, it's very – I can't. I can't play the mm-hmm. game. Um, I wish no one any harm. I take. I do not relish in being called a heretic. Uh, I just. I'm just trying to be me. I, my puny brain. I'm trying to make sense of it all too. I don't have all the answers, but I know that's not it. At least mm-hmm. for me. And so I need to live a life that's true to myself, and wow. it's, uh, it's it's a beautiful way to live and, and breathe in this world.
0: I, I really want everybody to, to hear and, and absorb what you just said because I, I hear it all the time. From, I, I'm losing community. I'm losing friends. Some are losing family. And so my question always is, so why are you doing this? And we have to know why. And the why is something inside of us is telling us that pursuing truth and pursuing real connection with heaven and real connection with ourselves is worth it, is worth Mm -hmm. it. Whether I'm nine or 90, that it's still worth it. And I I really believe that work somehow goes on with us into the next life. So like I say, at nine or 90, it's still worth it. But yeah, I I think there's just something innately in us that, that has to be shut down and turned off in indoctrination that says, no, there's a greater truth that somebody in Europe looked at the ocean and said, there's something on the other side of that thing. And, and mm-hmm. then they did terrible things when they got to the other side, which is beside the point, but, but always yeah. something inside of us saying there's something more to see and know and search out, and it's worth it, and I'm going to mm-hmm. find myself in that journey.
1: Right. So beautiful. Well, uh, beautifully said, Paul. You, love you know, if, if, if there's a God uh, then I assume that God appreciates truth. Mm. And if we are truthful and congruent, then if God is the type to say, well, because you are so truthful and honest with where you are at in this spiritual journey, that he would punish us? I mean, I, it brings tears to my eyes. What kind of God would that be? It's mm. not a God that I would worship. I, you know, I appeal to my own fatherhood and sense of justice meter as I have a child. I, I mean, I, I would never. Uh, I want him to be congruent. And if he, you know, misses the mark and chooses a ways that is not true to who he truly is inside, uh, then I will love him and I will encourage him. I will show him a different way but to have my best move in the form of justice to be physical violence you know stoning or let me burn you or you know like that's just so that's humans projecting their stuff on god that's that's that couldn't if god is the you know if God is the most loving and wise disciplinarian that could exist, he must transcend our wisdom and must look better than Hitler, Stalin uh, combined. Mm-hmm. He must look better than that. So just uh-huh. logically, that sort of vindictive, punitive, not restorative kind of God, it just it does not make sense to me.
0: Logic has nothing to do with it, Mark. His ways are higher than our ways Don't think logically.
1: I understand. (laughs) Listen, I I can appreciate where my dear brothers and sisters and in between were back in the day believing what they believed. But, uh, you know, sometimes love can show us a different way. And I do recall Jesus (laughs) kind of saying that as well. You heard it said this, but let me tell you something else. Let me show you a better way.
0: Love that conversation with Mark Harris. Now, we have a part two to this podcast coming up. For those of you who are a subscriber on my website at pastor-paul.com, you can go find the link to that part two right now and start listening to it right away. For those of you who are not subscribers at the website, that will will, uh, be dropped in two weeks and be available for you on my YouTube channel and on all the major podcast outlets. So don't forget, pastor-paul.com. You can sign up as a subscriber and hear part two as well. Right now, where we talk to Dr. Mark Harris about how to pray and something he calls conspiring prayer. If you're a subscriber, you can listen right now. If you're not a subscriber, you can catch that in a couple of weeks. Hope you are having an amazing day. And remember... God is not mad at you. I'm Pastor Paul. Thanks for hanging with us on the Post Evangelical Podcast.